If you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. It's Romans chapter 14, and today we'll begin reading in verse 13. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ as acceptable to God and approved by him. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Please be seated. It's such a blessing today. to be able to stand here in a time and a place where we can freely gather and open God's word and worship. It's a great morning when we can spend time in prayer, in Bible study, to hear all the voices today singing, to hear the children worshiping. And we're free to do this in Christ. So as we continue today in chapter 14, I want to take a moment to remind ourselves of the very long road we've been down to get here today. Paul started with 11 chapters of pure theology and doctrine. He clearly explains who God is, who man is, our need for salvation, the work of Jesus Christ and salvation. He talks about sin and our need for salvation, not only for the Gentiles, but for the Jews, just a universal need of all mankind for a Savior. He talks about salvation itself, that justification comes only one way, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about freedom, and and that's the result of salvation is freedom. We have freedom from wrath, freedom from sin, freedom from the law, freedom from death. And he talked about the scope of salvation. 
both the Jew and the Gentile, that God chooses to save believers. And in Romans chapter 12, we see a shift from doctrine to the results of this doctrine. Some people would call this application or the consequences of the doctrine. But what Paul spends the remainder of Romans on is how does doctrine affect how we live every day? To sum it up, Paul talks about the transformed life. We've already seen the transformed life in relation to our overall conduct. We've seen the transformed life in relation to civil authorities. We've seen the transformed life as it relates to our fellow men. But in chapter 14, Paul begins to deal with the transformed life as it relates to Christian liberty. Not only our Christian liberty, but what Paul calls the weaker brother. In last week's text, Paul encourages us to receive the one who is weak in the faith and do not quarrel over mere opinions. When talking about eating meat or only eating vegetables, Paul says one person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. He talked about holy days, not the Sabbath, but the other days that one might think are holy and should be celebrated. And some people might have a conviction that we should not celebrate these man-made holy days. Of this, he writes that one person esteems one day as better than the other, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains and abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Judging others for mere opinions, judging our brothers and sisters, is totally inappropriate because we are not their masters. Just like us, Christ is their master. They belong to the Lord. So you'll notice in chapters 14 and 15 that the things Paul is talking about here are not sinful things. And let me be very clear from the front. What Paul is talking about is not a freedom to sin. We can and absolutely should call our brothers and sisters to repentance when we see sin in their lives. Now that one everyone would agree with. The really hard part for us sometimes is the other side of that coin. We should be grateful when someone else calls us to repent of our sins and points out sin in our life. Paul is not pointing to some type of antinomianism, the idea that there's now no more law, so we can just do whatever we want. While it's true that there's no condemnation for those who believe and that we're freed from condemnation of the law, we are still called to obey God's word and to avoid sin. What Paul is talking about, there's a Greek word for it. It's a, it's a diaphora. 
These are things that exist outside of moral categories. Things that are morally indifferent. Matters of the conscience. The easiest way to remember this is a diaphora are the things that are never commanded or forbidden in Scripture. Say that again. Things that are never commanded or forbidden in Scripture. Paul also talks about the weaker brother. And the weaker brother is the one who has a misinformed understanding of what God has commanded or forbidden. Where do we know what God has commanded and, and forbidden? It's, it, it's not some tingling sensation. It's found in God's word and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the key is, this weaker brother is still our brother. And we have a duty to come alongside them, to fellowship with them, to try to maintain unity with them. So let's jump right into our text at verse 13, where we see Paul continue his teaching on Christian liberty. Verse 13 reads, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So here we have a, a primary principle that Paul is teaching. And this is where I want us to focus today, is on this principle. For actions that would fall into this adiaphora category, actions that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. Examples of this would be like Paul uses eating meat, uh, drinking wine. Uh, for things that we still see today, like holy days, should we celebrate Advent or Christmas? Some things may sound pretty goofy, but I guarantee you people have a conviction again it, against it. Should the person up here preaching have a beard? Should he be wearing a coat and tie at all times? Should women wear head coverings in the service? These are things that many will agree that they're not, they don't fall into this category, but they do. They fall into this category that is neither morally good nor morally wrong. So Paul says, for these types of actions... Let us not judge one another. Rather, instead of judging one another, let us avoid putting a stumbling block in the way of our brothers and sisters. We all know a Christian, good Christians, men and women that are dedicated and faithful and serve, but ones that their conscience does not allow them to participate or approve of certain activities. These activities clearly fall into this category of morally indifferent. We need to be reminded that when, a, when the stronger brother in this situation, out of love for the weaker brother, voluntarily conforms their action to the stricter actions of the weaker brother or sister, that this is a good thing. It builds closer relationships in the church. 
The church as a whole is strengthened by it. The church is more unified. But here's the hard part. It'd be easy to go back and say, well, I I know a weaker brother. I know a weaker sister. And sit here and completely ignore the fact that I guarantee us each and every one of us has an activity that we do or don't do that we avoid on the basis of conscience. We cannot sit here today and say we are always the stronger brother. I guarantee you we are the weaker brother on certain topics. So as we move forward in today's text, we'll see a few things. It's not about bending over backwards all the time in every situation. It's definitely not about the stronger brother needing to violate their own conscience for the sake of the weaker. It's not about proving that in some way we're always the strong one and someone else is the weak one. It's not about putting people in categories of strong and weak. It's talking about a genuine love for one another. It's talking about being willing to forego the liberty that we have in Christ for the sake of our brothers and sisters. It's about caring for the spiritual well-being of those for whom Christ has died for. So as we continue on today, I want you to keep this principle in the back of your mind which is verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul continues on in verse 14 and 15. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you no longer walk in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So we see here our first point in this principle. Do not grieve your brothers and sisters. Do not allow your Christian liberty to grieve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says that he is convinced That when it comes to eating or drinking, nothing in and of itself is unclean. Now this is fairly profound for someone like Paul. Someone that was a Pharisee. A Jew among Jews. Paul would have spent the vast majority of his life being very careful about what he ate or drank. He would have strictly followed Jewish dietary laws. But here he says that he is fully convinced that nothing is unclean. And this isn't just Paul got tired of keeping the rules, so he's playing by his own rules now. If we look back at Acts chapter 10, we see where Paul becomes fully convinced of this. He, it says the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop. Uh, I'm sorry, this is about Peter, not Paul. Uh, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and a voice came to him 
Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And what was the Lord's response to that? It was, Do not call unclean what I've made clean. Jesus himself declared this principle in in, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 15. It says, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Very clearly, there's not a food or a drink that by consuming it defiles you. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. So Paul is absolutely correct in saying that he is convinced that there is nothing unclean in and of itself. Paul is clearly the stronger brother on this topic. A weaker brother would be the one that thinks that eating or drinking can be unclean and that it would be sinful for themselves or anyone else to partake in this unclean food or drink. Now we can sit back and say this is, this is a simple process. Paul just needs to go back to the weaker brother and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. Look at what Jesus taught. Look here in Scripture. Look, look, look back at Peter. Look at these things. You're wrong. Or the stronger brother could just simply judge silently, not say anything, perhaps even go behind this person's back and gossip about them. Or some, and at times I would probably have done this myself, I'd go to that person that thinks that eating meat is wrong and I'd get a big old plate of ribs and sit down right in front of them and eat them. Why? Because they're wrong and I'm right. But Paul says, and we need to be very clear on this, Paul says that for the person that believes it's unclean, it is unclean for them. Why does, does their belief make the food unclean? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. It becomes a matter of conscience, a matter of the heart. If I was one that believed that eating meat is wrong and it dishonors God and it, offended, it offends God and then I choose to eat, that would be sin. Not the actual eating, but the violation of the conscience. The being willing to dishonor or offend God is sinful. So this sin would not result in the eating of food. It would result in my active decision to offend or dishonor God. So let's look at an example of how Paul says to handle this. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all, and we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if, God, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. 
For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we have all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this very important. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you uh, have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he, not, uh, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not, never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's response in this situation, again, do not grieve your brother. Do not let your freedom destroy what God has created. If you, by insisting on your liberty in Christ, cause another brother to stumble, Paul is very clear. You have sinned not only against your brother, you've sinned against Christ. Paul tells us, do not take this liberty that we have in Christ and then end up using it to destroy those that Christ died for. Paul takes this so seriously that at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, if, if, if eating meat offered to idols or just eating meat causes my brother to, uh, if it, eating any food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Even though he just very clearly and accurately showed how there is nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols. Yet he says, I will forego my liberty forever if I can keep one brother from stumbling. So let's turn back to Romans 8 and continue reading in verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So let's remember the principle here. Don't pass judgment on your brother. Rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in his way. That first point was not to use your Christian liberty to grieve your brothers and sisters. Here we find the next point. Don't allow your Christian liberty to damage your witness. Paul warns us not to let something that is regarded as good be spoken of as evil. 
What Paul is talking about here, the good thing that Paul is talking about is our Christian liberty. Don't allow that good thing to be spoken of as evil. Now, how is that possible? It's possible when we abuse our Christian liberty. When one uses the liberty for selfish purposes or uses it, use it in a way that causes division or disunity in the church, we put this good gift of Christ in an evil light. Walter Chantry uh, has a book called The Shadow of the Cross, Studies in Self-Denial. And he discusses this topic of how Christians can twist and abuse the idea of Christian liberty in pride and selfishness. So bear with me because I have a few quotes from him on this topic. He says that in the name of liberty, professing Christians glut themselves with luxuries, entertainments, and sensuous pleasures. Under the banner of freedom, men give the reins to their thirst for wealth, women dress immodestly, feeding vanity which loves attention, and youth abandon themselves to athletics and leisure. When self is fed in this manner, it becomes brazen and runs to excess, crowding God out of the heart. They begin to serve themselves rather than the Lord. And they do this all in the name of Christian liberty. I can dress how I want to dress. I can eat the things I want to eat. I can do this. Starts pricking at our pride and our selfishness. He goes on to say the Christian liberty then does not teach that there are things in the world in which you are free to indulge yourself. It does not suggest that you may do anything you wish with God's creation, but it teaches that there are things with which you are free to enjoy and use as you serve the Lord. Liberty may be an instrument for giving glory to the Most High, or it may be a curtain used to shield base indulgences of the flesh. Say that again. Liberty may have an instrument, may be an instrument to give glory to God. That's what Christian liberty was given for. Or it can be used to shield our base indulgence of the flesh. How do we know the difference? You may discover by your self-examination of your heart which function liberty plays in your life. He writes, it is, not good, it is not enough for you to ask yourself, does God's word permit me to use the good things of this world? It's not enough to ask, does God's word permit me to use these good things of the world? You must also inquire, will it serve the glory of God? Will it edify my fellow Christians? This is what Paul is talking about in verse 16. Don't let this good thing of Christian liberty be spoken of as evil by our misuse of it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what do we pursue? We pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. The misuse of Christian liberty 
makes evil what God meant for good. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the marketplace without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. But give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the, that of many. Why? Because they might be saved. So what is the purpose of our Christian liberty? It's very simple. It's always been for the purposes of glorifying God. We can glorify God by partaking in our freedoms and being thankful for those freedoms, being thankful for the Christian liberty that we have. But we can also glorify God by willing, being willing to forego those liberties for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We can also glorify God that by foregoing our liberty that we bring peace and unity with other believers. And we do this over our own comforts and our own desires and our own liberties. Keep reading with me in verse 20 of our text. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Here we see Paul's third point in this principle. Do not let your Christian liberty mar the work of God. For the sake of something so trivial as food or wine or your clothing or your beard or a head covering, don't mar the work of God on such frivolous things. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not at your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Believers are a work of God. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We were predestined by the Father before the foundation of the world. As we saw in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Everything is indeed clean. But to cause a brother to stumble in sin is to sin against Christ. 
Therefore, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Keeping your brother and sister from stumbling is a good thing. And it's far better than insisting on your own comforts and liberty. We have a common goal as the church. As Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, which he says that the Lord gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. For what purpose? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our being willing to forego our Christian liberty for the sake of our brothers and sisters helps us to equip each part of the body, makes the entire body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is not for the individual alone. If, this was, if Ephesians chapter 4 was just for the individual alone, then we should grab onto the liberty that we have and not let anyone take it from us. But it's not. It's for the church as a whole. So we must be willing to set aside our liberty for the sake of our brothers so that the entire church can grow up in every way in Christ. If we continue in verse 22 of our text, we'll see Paul's fourth point. We need to view our Christian liberty from God's perspective, not from man's perspective. Paul writes, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This advice is for both the stronger and the weaker brother. It doesn't matter if you're the stronger brother or the weaker brother on any given topic. Keep that between you and God. Paul is not saying here that we can't talk about our faith or our convictions with one another. Rather, he says, we must not let others dictate that faith. We must not let others dictate our convictions. We need to think about our liberty in the light of the one who bestowed it on us. As the stronger brother in any situation, we must not flaunt our liberty for others. But at the same time, we must not denounce it either. It's a good and wonderful thing that we do when we don't have a reason to pass judgment on ourselves for our convictions. But in foregoing our freedoms out of love for a brother, 
we must not end up denouncing or speaking ill of that freedom that God gave us. For those that have convictions regarding things that are neither commanded or condemned in Scripture, in those times we, we must remember that, uh, that actions that are left to the conscience can become sinful even if we're wrong about those convictions. So even if we're wrong, to knowingly do something that we believe dishonors God or that we believe violates the law is sinful. So whether you're in any situation, you're the stronger brother or the weaker brother, we are to seek to glorify God in what we do and to encourage and equip each other in the same. Kate and I often talk about how thankful we are for this church family. We can see what other churches are doing. We can see what other churches are teaching. We can see what values that they're expressing. We can see how they care for one another. And I'm not trying to speak will of other churches. I'm just so incredibly proud of this church. We know it's not perfect. We know that we can grow. We know we can do things better. But we remain so thankful that the Lord has brought this local body of believers together. Because it would be so easy, as many believers do, for each of us to walk into this building, to put our time and energy into being consumers. Put our time and energy into only seeking after the things that bring us comfort and joy. We can be the type of people so easily that through our desire to meet our own needs, we just neglect those around us. But I've been reminded over the last few months that what we see happening in our church is the Lord working. Some examples of that. We have an amazing group of people that are here each and every Sunday that have a passion for worshiping the Lord in song. What people don't often see is they gather together weekly to pray and to practice. They spend hours every month picking out songs that are theological and true, songs that will be edifying to us as believers, songs that focus on who God is rather than on who we are. They focus on not putting on a performance, but on having the congregation sing together. And I think you can see that today. I was a bit overwhelmed sitting and listening to just the voices of God's people praise his name. We have volunteers that dedicate countless hours to equipping and teaching our children that put up with the snotty noses and sometimes snotty attitudes that put up with probably a million questions a night but dedicate their time to help point our children to Christ. We have a fantastic adult teachers that give up their free time and spend countless hours in study and preparation for each one of their lessons. We have wonderful ministry teams that work behind the scenes to help plan and execute just about every ministry of this church. Just yesterday morning, we had a group of 20 men 
take time away from their families, take time away on their Saturday morning to come and corporately pray together for the church. And I'm sure that I am missing so many others that serve and so many other ways that people serve. But I say this to say I'm so encouraged that we can see the living out of this principle. That we can forego some of our liberties, that we can forego some of our comfort to serve one another and to serve the church. I truly do believe that we are a church that desires to see spiritual growth, that desires to see the community around us come to Christ. So it's my prayer today. This isn't a sermon to go back and say, how dare you, you need to do better. It's a sermon to say, I believe we do this, but let's pray to do more. I pray that we each look at each other that when we each look at each other, it's not some idea of what liberty do I have to give up? What do I have to do for this person? It doesn't become a job that we're commanded to do. But when we look at one another, we see the completed work of Christ in believers. We see God's workmanship in those around us. Because when we see that, we do things much better. It makes the church a lot better. It becomes like second nature to think of others more than we think of ourselves because when we look at others, we see the completed work of Christ. It becomes like breathing to see another person and being willing to forego our liberties and comfort for their sake. And it becomes easier for us to do these things not because we're commanded to, but because the truth is that Christ died for that person that you're willing to serve. Christ died for that person that you're willing to forego some of your Christian liberty so as not to put a stumbling block in front of them. This is a beautiful thing that I see in our church. And it's one that I hope becomes a long-term value that we have in seeing the believers around us as God's workmanship and that we're willing to serve one another not because we're commanded to but because it brings glory to God when we do. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ for salvation you may hear these things and find them strange. And to the unbeliever I will admit it is strange. It's strange because salvation is a work of God. We don't do anything to deserve it. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. As a matter of fact, before God works in a believer's heart, you don't even desire to have it. Each and every one of us here is a sinner. Scripture says that none are holy, not even one as we've been talking about in evangelism on Wednesday nights, if you've ever told a lie, you're a sinner. If you've ever stolen anything, you're a sinner. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain, you're a sinner. If you've hated your brother, you're a murderer and a sinner. If you've ever looked lustfully at another man or woman, you're an adulterer and a sinner. God's requirement of righteousness is perfection, and each and every one of us has failed at it. 
Scripture actually says that if you're guilty of even one of these things, you're guilty of them all. And Scripture says that there's a punishment for sin. It says the wages of sin is death. But thankfully, Scripture continues when it says that the gift of God is eternal life for those who repent and believe. All this talk of Christian liberty and our being willing to forego it I need unbelievers to understand that we do have freedom in Christ. We do have liberty in Christ. Because in sin, without faith, we are slaves to sin. There is nothing else we can do. But Christ, being fully God, put on flesh, became fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day. And in doing so, he has taken the wages of sin for us. Paul wrote that there's no condemnation for those who believe. So there is true freedom and true liberty in the work of Christ. Because we've been freed from sin. We've been freed from the wrath of a holy God. We've been freed from condemnation. We've been made free in Christ. But there's a truth here that we need to look at. One must believe in the work of Christ. One must believe that they are sinners. One must put their faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And we must repent of our sins to turn away from them and turn to Christ. I would urge you that if you're here today and you're unsure of your salvation, or if you know that you have not placed your faith in Christ, I would simply beg you to repent and believe. But I would also offer that if you have any questions about salvation, or you'd like to talk to someone, please see Casey or I before you leave today. You can also call us during the week, email us, and we will be more than happy to have that conversation. But please repent and believe. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the liberty that we have in Christ, for what you freed us from, Lord, and what you freed us to. Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire deep in our hearts a love and a desire to see our brothers and sisters in Christ thrive and spiritually grow. Lord, I pray that you would give us desires in our heart to see that we would be willing to forego these items that fall into this adiaphora, that we'd forego these frivolous things for the sake of those that your son died for. Lord, as we continue in worship and song, I pray that it would be edifying for the believers, that it would be a pleasing aroma to you, Lord. Prepare our hearts as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.